Good morning. Today's reading of the word is from John eleven seventeen through 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his feet. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Morning, everyone. You guys doing all right? Well, I had a wonderful time at council in Spokane last week. That's why I wasn't here. The other beard, bearded, balded guy was Sam. 
Pastor Sam, and it wasn't me. I know it's hard to get us apart, to tell us apart and all that, but it was him, not me. I do have a bone to pick. You guys didn't laugh at his jokes, and so now you have me rethinking every joke I ever tell, and you know, I don't want to have to do one of these numbers and throw it away like Sam had to. So we're already off to a better start. Sorry, Sam. Uh, just to give you guys a brief update on what I was doing last week in Spokane. Uh, every two years for the Alliance, we have our national gathering as council. And it's a wonderful time where we get together with a lot of pastors and missionaries and delegates from churches. And it's like a big family reunion. And at a family reunion, there's always a great time. You're happy to see each other. You get to play some games and be singing some songs like we did. You know, we got to spend a lot of time in worship, hear from some great speakers. And then there's lots of great discussions that happen at family reunions as well. And sometimes those discussions get heated and there are disagreements. And that happened at council too. And so we got to talk about some fun stuff about uh, our statement of faith, updating that. So we updated our statement of faith a little bit to bring clarity to some of the things. And I'm happy to share more of that. Later, I don't want to do it on a Sunday morning. And also some of our polity, which is a fancy word of how we govern ourselves as churches. And so we affirmed some things there. We clarified some things. But most of all of what we did is we made much of Jesus. We spent a lot of time worshiping him. And everything culminates at council in our final session, which is where we commission new missionaries to go all around the world. And it was such a wonderful time because you get to see uh, every missionary with their flags and their full traditional dress uh, proceeding from the back of the huge sanctuary with 3,000 people up to the front and back again. And I was in tears the entire time just holding up my phone and I'm just like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And that's what we all get to be a part of. We're not just a part of this local church. We're a part of the Alliance family, not just in the U.S., but the, the worldwide Alliance family, sending missionaries all around the world, planting churches in hard-to-reach places, and we get to be a part of all that. And so thank you all for letting me go to that. It was such a wonderful time. I am happy to be back, though, today. Um, I'm not going to give you a pop quiz of what we learned. Sam covered that last week for you guys, and so you should be all—they did great? Yeah. I couldn't— Okay. <laughs> Didn't laugh. We'll work on that portion, but you guys remembered everything. I couldn't hear your answers because, you know, it was just Sam on the mic, but I'm going to tr- take his word for it. So you guys did good. We've been a ser- in a series on the I Am Statements of Jesus, and we're coming towards the end of that series. This is week seven of eight, um, and we're going to be talking about something today, which is really fun to talk about. But before I jump into that, I just want to pray real quick. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your love and your kindness towards us. And we thank you that you are a God who steps down into our junk. A God who steps down into our brokenness, in our sin, into our rebellion. God, and you make a way where there is no way. God, you provide hope when everything seems hopeless. And I pray that today you would help us to Have open eyes to your word, open eyes to your promises, open eyes to the goodness of the gospel. And we praise you, we love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So this is one of my favorite topics to talk about um, because it's one that we often misunderstand. The resurrection is one that we don't really understand very well, and oftentimes as a pastor, I can kind of feel like this up on the screen. It's just bad theology, bad theology everywhere. 
Okay, I'll crumple that one up and, okay. It can feel like that at times where you're just like, I don't know where you got that. I don't know where you heard that from, but it's not what Scripture says. And oftentimes, I don't think we're intentionally creating bad theology and selling it to other people, packaging up in like this neat little box. Like, here is this bad heretical theology, and it's yours for the low, low price of $9.99. I don't think we're doing that. I think just unintentionally, over time, we hear some things, we digest those things, and we adopt those things without ever really understanding what Scripture has to say, without ever really understanding the promises of God. And this, today, in our episode on bad theology everywhere, we're talking about heaven, eternal life, and the resurrection, which is an often misunderstood doctrine. It's one that that we often don't get, we don't understand, we've parroted things about heaven and eternal life and that sort of thing, which which sometimes makes sense, but sometimes only tell a portion of the story. And so today I'm hoping that we can kind of recover the fullness of the promises that we have in God, because I think truly that we've lost some of our distinctives. We've lost some of our distinctive beliefs about the life that is to come, about the promises that we have in Jesus because of the gospel. And I think because we've lost some of that distinctiveness, because we've lost some of that understanding about the resurrection, it's led us to this place of not operating the way that we're supposed to here and now. That because we don't fully understand the God—oh, goodness— <laughs> And something fully in my throat there. Because we don't fully understand the gospel, we don't fully understand how we're supposed to live in light of the gospel. Because we don't understand the ultimate promises that we have in God, because of what he's done on our behalf through his life, death, and resurrection, we don't ultimately live rightly. So here, I'm just going to start it off very quickly. Uh, the Christian hope is not in going to heaven. Like, wait, What? What are you talking about, pastor? That's craziness. Of course, we're, that's what we always talk about, going to heaven. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope isn't in this disembodied heaven where we leave the earth behind and all of its pain and suffering. But the ultimate hope that we have as Christians is in the future resurrection where God makes all things new. That is the ultimate hope that we have, where where heaven and earth, as they exist now, pass away, and a new heaven and earth are created by God for us to live with him in perfect harmony forever and ever and ever. That is our ultimate hope as Christians. And, And you may be saying, well, that's just technical theology. It doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. This hope matters, and it matters greatly, because when we fail to understand our resurrection hope, we misunderstand the gospel and everything that flows from it. We must once again grab hold of this crucial doctrine of the resurrection. And so we're going to go on a journey today, and I hope that that journey brings some clarity for us on the resurrection, on what Jesus has promised for us, and ultimately what it means for us eternally and currently. And so don't throw anything at me as we go through this. Don't yell heresy at me as we go through this. I just encourage you to to take a look at Scripture as we go throughout this journey and ultimately find out what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to start at the problem. And this is the problem that we all have. It's the problem of pain. And so I want to go to John 11, 17 through 22, and I want to read about the pain Before we get to the solution, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus 
had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And so let's, let's talk about this for a moment. We have Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and they're close to Jesus. They're disciples of Jesus. When, when we're describing Lazarus, they, they use the terms, the one that you love. Who they describe Lazarus as in his relationship to Jesus. Martha and Mary have this wonderful story about Martha cleaning up and doing everything and being busy while Mary sits at Jesus' feet in the posture of a disciple, clinging to every word that he says. And Martha comes up to Jesus like, Jesus, don't you care that I'm over here doing all the work while my sister is just sitting there like a lazy bum at your feet? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only one was required. Your sister has chosen the better thing. That's who we're talking about in this story. We're talking about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this is a story that is full of pain. It's full of difficulty. It's full of heartbreak. Because we come to this story, we pick it up where Lazarus has been dead for four days. And in case you don't know, that's really dead. Like stinky in the grave, dead. It's been four days. And what's interesting, if we would have started a little bit earlier in chapter 11, we would have seen that Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick before he died. He knew that Lazarus was sick. He knew that it was difficult. He knew that he was in pain, and he certainly could have made it there. Bethany was only two miles from where Jesus was, and Jesus could have made it there easily and could have healed Lazarus before he died, but he didn't. He didn't do what maybe a lot of us would want him to do, to help us to avoid the pain, to help us to avoid the difficulty, to avoid the heartbreak. And we come here where where Jesus rolls into town and Martha meets him outside. And she's full of pain. Full of pain. She says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a painful thing to say to Jesus. And maybe some of you here have said something like that to God before. God, if you would have moved, I wouldn't be feeling the way that I do. If you would have answered my prayer, I wouldn't be sad. I wouldn't be angry. I wouldn't be upset. Martha's greeting Jesus and she's grieving Her brother has died. The one that she loves has died. And it seems like her Lord didn't even care. He could have been there. He could have healed her, but healed him, but he didn't. But while Martha is full of pain, she's also hopeful. Look at what she says in verse 22. But I know that even now, even when it seems like there's no hope, even when I'm in the deep midst of my grief, even when all things look like there's no way out, 
Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Mary's hurting, she's grieving, but she knows that this Jesus is powerful. That if he could heal Lazarus, surely he can do something now. And I know that he's dead, and he's really dead, and he's stinky dead, but surely, God, you can do something. Surely, Jesus, you can do something. Martha's posture is full of pain, but also a little bit hopeful. But what's interesting here is who's talking to Jesus. Because remember, we're calling the story of Mary and Martha. Mary was the one with Jesus while Martha was over there. But now Martha is the one that has run out to Jesus while Mary's nowhere to be found. Martha has this grief inside of her, but a little bit of hopefulness. But I want you to flip ahead to verse 32 real quick. Because Martha ultimately goes back to Mary and calls Mary to her to meet Jesus. And this is what it says in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The same thing that Martha said. But for Mary, she doesn't say, and even now, I know that you can do all things. Even now, I know there's hope. Even now, I know that even though he's dead, you can make him come back to life. Mary was so hurt, so grieving, in so much pain that she couldn't even come to Jesus. Her sister had to say, come, the teacher is asking for you. Come meet him. Come meet the one that you love. And as she comes to him, she falls on her feet in grief and saying, Lord, if you had been here, if you had answered our plea, if you would have come, he wouldn't have died. There's no hope for her. Life is full of pain, friends. And I know a lot of you sitting here have experienced a lot of pain. You've experienced heartbreak. You've experienced praying for loved ones, seeking for loved ones to be healed, to be saved, and it's seemingly being quiet on the other hand and God not answering. You've grieved over that. You've been heartbroken over that. You've been confused and angry and upset with God over that. It's hard. It's hard to understand what God is doing. It's hard to understand why God would allow these things to happen. Sometimes we, we go through these things and we end up on the other side and we're okay. We have a good understanding of God and we're okay and God helps us grieve and we're like Martha there saying, God, if you would have been here, if you would have answered, everything would have been okay. But even now, I still know that you're good. Even now, I know that you're faithful. Even now, I know that you're all-powerful. But some of us are still like Mary, sitting there, Lord, if you would have answered, if only you would have answered. And that's a hard place to get out of. But I want to tell you this morning that God is not unaware of your pain. He's not unconcerned about your pain. He's not unmoved by your grief. He's not unmoved by the pain and the brokenness and the suffering in our world. Jesus cares about our pain, and this story helps us to see that. 
We have one of the, we have the shortest verse in all of the Bible in this story. Jesus wept. How can we say that God is unmoved, that he doesn't care? He surely does. He weeps over his friend's death. He's moved and concerned. Jesus cares about our pain. He cares about our brokenness. He cares about our despair. Let's read verses 33 through 37. When Jesus saw her weeping, talking of Mary, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is God's disposition to the brokenness in the world. It's his disposition to the pain and the suffering and the heartbreak. In verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Some of us will will find comfort in knowing that Jesus cares. And knowing that he's moved and knowing that he loves, even despite the circumstances that were put in. But some of us will have the same understanding of those in verse 37 saying, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Some of us will see God answering the other prayers of other people and say, God, why do you love them more than you love me? Why do you answer them and not answer me? Some of us will, will doubt God's goodness and his love and his mercy and his kindness because of the things that we've been through. And I'm not here condemning your doubt. I'm not here condemning your pain. That's part of our human experience. It's human to doubt. It's human to feel pain. It's human to get angry and upset when these things don't go the way that we want them to go. But God is not unmoved. He is not uncompassionate. He does not lack feeling for what he sees in the world. There's this idea of theodicy, which is a fancy theological word talking about how could a good God allow bad things to happen? And it's an age-old question that people have been thinking about for thousands and thousands of years. And sometimes in the academy, we can talk about that on a theoretical level, but some of you have experienced that. Some of you have wrestled with that. Some of you have, have gone, God, how, how could you allow this to happen? Some of us have come to the conclusion, well, maybe God isn't as good as they say he is. Maybe Jesus isn't as loving as he says, or as he comes off, or as the Bible proclaims. Friends, evil and suffering and brokenness and sin and rebellion and death, they're not arguments against God. They're arguments for the gospel. They're not arguments against the goodness of God. As counterintuitive as it seems, they're arguments for his goodness, 
for his grace, for his mercy. It's the good news of the gospel that God sees our pain, that he sees our brokenness, that he sees the suffering of the world, and that he's made a way of redemption, that he's made a way of reconciliation, that he is going to make all things new. The gospel isn't just about God making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive again. It's the story of resurrection. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of recreation. It's about God making all things new. I think too often we misunderstand the gospel. Too often we don't even start telling it in the right place. I had some fun with, with our small group a couple of weeks ago, and I played the devil's advocate, which you never want to hear your pastor saying that he's playing the devil's advocate. But in that situation, I played the doubter and just kept asking the why question. I was the annoying three-year-old in our small group. And I was trying to get us to, to talk about the gospel and start from the beginning of the gospel. And what's interesting is more often than not, If I were to ask you guys to tell me the gospel, to tell me the gospel story, you would start with the fall of man. It's just where where we end up starting. I don't know why we end up starting there, but more often than not, we'll say that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience. And that's often where we start the gospel message, but it actually doesn't start there. The gospel message doesn't start in Genesis 3, it starts in Genesis 1. It doesn't start with the fall of man. It starts with a good God. A God who has always existed. A God who is eternally loved. A God who decides to create out of that love. And as he creates, he creates the heavens and the earth and everything within the earth. And what does he do after every time he creates? This is the interactive portion. What does he do? He says it's good. And it's good And it's good, and it's good. God created the cosmos. He created everything within them, and he proclaims that it's good. God's intention for the world was goodness. God's intention for the world was this beautiful place. Where does God put Adam and Eve? He puts them in a beautiful garden, a wonderful place where all their needs are met where he walks with them, where he loves them, where he lavishes stuff upon them. And he tells them to keep the garden. And he tells them to subdue the rest of the earth and make it like the garden. That was the original charge to man, to make this whole thing that we live in, this giant blue shiny marble, into what God originally created. To subdue the earth, make it like Eden. But things went wrong. And Adam and Eve, even though they had this wonderful place, this place where they could meet with God, a place where they could do all of this great stuff, they decided to do the one thing that God told them not to do. And so we had the fall. And we had pain. And we had death. And sin entered into the world, and it distorted the entire creation. All of creation marred by sin. God's good creation, because of our disobedience, gone awry. 
But God isn't one to say that I've made this good and now you've chosen this. And because of that, there are these consequences. And so I'm just going to wipe my hands of it. It's not what God does. He makes a promise. He makes a promise to Abraham and says, All the nations, every people will be blessed from your descendants. He makes a promise. And as time goes on, people continue to do what people do. They sin and rebel. God gave them a law. He gave them a way. And they're like, yeah, but no. They choose themselves and rebel over and over again. And it's getting dark and it's getting late. And God has made these promises. But is he ever going to fulfill these promises? He said there'd be another king. He said there would be someone like David. He said that that he would come. All these prophets arise and they, they speak these great things and then silence. God seemingly not caring for the world, not caring for the pain, not caring that his promise that he made seems to be non-existent. And at just the right time, at just the right time, God himself looks over the world, takes on flesh, becomes a man through the incarnation, born of the virgin Mary, true man, true God. God wasn't unconcerned for creation. He wasn't unconcerned for the pain. He wasn't unconcerned for the brokenness. He stepped down into it. He himself became a man. And through the life of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, there's redemption. There's reconciliation. The one who was just died for the unjust. The one who was righteous died for the unrighteous. And by grace, by God's grace, through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can have that redemption. We can have that reconciliation. We can be justified where all of our sins are washed away. All of our bad decisions washed away, justified before God, where God no longer sees us by our sin, but sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. Adopted as sons and daughters of God. God not just tolerating, not just saying, I forgive you of your sins, but says, welcome to the family. My son and my daughter have a seat at my table. This is what God has done for us. But it's not the whole story. Because right now, we're in that already, but not yet. We have these promises. We have this great redemption. We have justification and adoption. And daily by daily, slowly, we're being sanctified. But one day, the future hope is there where God will make all things new. Because the consequence for sin was death. And the resurrection is God's answer to that. The resurrection is death's defeat. God has moved in us and he is continuing to move in the world until we get to the new creation. That is the hope 
of Christianity. That is the hope of the world, a new creation. God making all things new. I want to read this quote from N.T. Wright. I think it helps us to understand what God has done in the gospel. Redemption is not simply making creation a bit better, as the optimistic evolutionists would try to suggest. Nor is it rescuing spirits and souls from an evil material world, as the Gnostic would want to say. It is the remaking of creation. Having dealt with the evil that is defacing and distorting it, and it is accomplished by the same God, now known in Jesus Christ, through whom it was made in the first place. That's redemption, friends. It's God making all things new. Starting with us, starting with our hearts, but one day, full newness. Heaven and earth passing away, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, God's heavenly city coming to earth where God and man dwell together as he intended it in the beginning. It's the Garden of Eden again. But right now, there's pain. Right now, there's brokenness. And these things aren't an argument for God. Again, they're an argument for the gospel. It's us longing for the new Jerusalem. It's us longing for the new creation. It's us longing for the resurrection. That's why we are filled with pain over these things. It's an argument for what God has done. The gospel is God stepping into our pain and bringing about a final solution to it through the promise of the resurrection. He will do it. Let's look at verses 23 through 27 of John 11. I know we're skipping around a little bit in John 11, but I think it helps us to better understand all of this. This is Jesus talking to Martha again at the beginning. And he says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So Martha has her brother die. She's talking with Jesus And she already believes that the end isn't the end. She believes that there'll be a resurrection one day, but no one believed that there would be a resurrection before the resurrection. No one believed that. And Jesus is is giving her clarity. He's about to show her that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the one who has power over death. He is the one that has power over the curse. He is the one. He clarifies who the resurrection is for, that it's for disciples and what it's for. It's for eternal life. It's for true life. It's for that life that God initially designs. It's not for everyone. It's for his disciples. It's something we need to understand. Eternal life doesn't happen because we want it to happen. Eternal life happens because of faith in Jesus. And we got to have that understanding, friends. 
It's life unending with Jesus in the new creation together with God forever. Forever. Singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Glory, glory, glory to the Lamb who was slain. Forever and ever, all of our days enjoying God, being with him, with no pain, with no heartache. Let's read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. This is the final portion of the book, friends. This is where we get to skip ahead and see the end story. This is the Christian hope. This is what we long for. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's the promise that we have. But there's also a warning. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We have this picture here. Picture of beauty, this picture of peace, this picture of new creation, this picture of the grand story of the Bible coming to a perfect close. God, once again, dwelling with his people in the perfect creation. And we also have the warning. The warning that, that God doesn't just redeem all people and says, you know, do whatever you want. He calls us to follow him, to love him, to respond to the gospel. And those who don't, are still dead in their trespasses, still consigned to the second death, consigned to hell, consigned to being separated from God forever. There's beauty here, but there's pain here. There's a promise here, but there's also a heartbreak here. It should paint a picture for us of the hope that we have And it should create in us a desire so that none would perish. 
None would experience death, the second death, the forever death. In our world, there's a lot of different longings for different things. There's desires for justice, for equality, for peace, unity, brotherly love. All these are good things. But we're never going to fully see them this side of eternity. We long for them, absolutely. We do whatever we can to do justice, to act mercifully. We do those things, absolutely. But we're never fully going to see them this side of eternity. They ultimately find their end in the resurrection of Jesus. Ultimately find their end in the new creation. God making all things new. And in this story that we're reading today, what Jesus does for Lazarus is a foretaste of what he's going to do for all his disciples. I want to read verses 38 through 44 again. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus is us. He was dead, but Jesus has brought new life to him. There was pain, there was heartbreak, but there was redemption, there was reconciliation, there was new life. In this story, Jesus shows that even death itself was subject to him. He gives a foretaste of what he's going to do on Easter morning. A foretaste that he is going to conquer death once and for all. Right now, you and I, we face all sorts of difficulties in life. We face the difficulty of death. But one day, one day, the day is coming for those who believe where we will hear, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The resurrection is a promise. A promise that the gospel is good. A promise that there will be ultimate redemption, ultimate reconciliation, ultimate new life. Though there's pain in the night currently, there's joy in the morning, there's dawning a new day where God remakes everything and once again says, it is very good. It is done. I have made all things new. And you and I, we can have hope in this. We can trust in the promises of Jesus to do this because he himself was raised from the dead. The cross wasn't the final word. It didn't end in Jesus' death. 
It didn't end in him being mocked and scorned and spit on. That's not the final word. The final word is the resurrection. The final word is Jesus rising out of the tomb. The final word, the word is showing that death no longer holds the victory. Death is no longer what we're subject to. There is life forever to come. Resurrection is death's defeat. He's given us a foretaste of what is to come, and he will certainly accomplish it for us. We must put our hope in him, trusting that he will make all things new. Amen? I want to talk for just a moment. With that as our understanding, I want to talk briefly about what happens when we die. This is the fun part. I'm going to talk about what happens when we die for those of us who are in Christ. We know that the the promise is the resurrection, but what happens between the moment that we die and the resurrection? What, What happens? Do we just cease to exist until the resurrection? No. It's not like some sort of suspended animation. I'm not going to read all of it for us this morning, but I encourage you to go to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, and read that this afternoon as you're chewing on this, thinking about this. Uh, What Paul does in that passage is he makes the case that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. When we're absent from the body, when we die, we're still present with Christ. We're not in some suspended animation, just, just waiting there in some like soul sleep or, or something like that. We're present with Christ. We see him. The pain is gone. The longing is gone. We're with Christ in heaven. As Dr. Craig Keener notes, the righteous dead experience a measure of the future glory as they await the resurrection experience what they're desiring, what they're longing for. They're with Jesus. But it's not the full picture. It's not the final word. I bring comfort this morning that, that the soul isn't just there dead awaiting. It's alive in Christ with him forever. It's not in purgatory or suspended animation. It's in heaven with Christ awaiting the resurrection, awaiting the redemption of all things. As Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. When Jesus comes, he brings back all who have preceded us in death. He brings back those who are righteous in him because of what he's done. With Christ, they're absent from the body, present with Christ. And as Jesus comes back to fully establish his kingdom, he brings with him all those who have trusted in him. To die is to be with Jesus. When he returns, when he comes to make all things new, it's heaven on earth. New heavens, new earth, a new Jerusalem. At the end of time, heaven and earth will pass away and we'll arrive at our ultimate promise, resurrection life in the new Jerusalem. That garden city that God had in mind when he had created Eden, the one that he is leading us to, the perfect city of God. It is our hope. And so how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of that? Well, first, 
we need to remember that we will die. Memento mori. Remember you will die. And so live accordingly. Live for God. Live in light of the gospel. Live for the sake of eternity. Live for the sake of what Jesus has done. N.T. Wright says this, Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day. With our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission, as a sign of the first, Easter, and the foretaste of the second, the resurrection. To remember that. To live in light of the resurrection. To live in light of what Jesus has done and what he will do for all the world. We should also live apologetically. Not unapologetically. We should live apologetically. We should have a sort of built-in resurrection apologetics within us. Because all the world is longing for the resurrection. All the world is longing for everything to be made right, to everything to be put into order, for there to be no injustice, no inequality, no pain, no suffering, no war. That's what the world is longing for. And friends, we have the solution. We have the answer. There's this myth of progress that we tend to believe, that the world definitely believes, but we as Christians believe as well, that over time, things will get better and better. And in some ways, they do. But they never will fully get better this, ti- this side of eternity. The beauty of the gospel is that while we can't make the world perfect, God will. God will make everything new through the resurrection and the new creation. And this has been the hallmark of Christian belief for 2,000 years. It's been the distinctive of Christianity that, yes, there's injustice. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's difficulty. Yes, there's brokenness. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's gross negligence in the world. But God isn't unmoved by it. He has sent Jesus into the world to bring a path of redemption, to bring a path of reconciliation, and ultimately to make all things new. Progress is not the answer. The early Christians, N.T. Wright says, believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. That is the hope that we have, that the resurrected Jesus is the foretaste of our life. The foretaste of the world. He goes on to say, only in the Christian story itself, certainly not in the secular stories of modernity, do we find any sense that the problems of the world are solved not by a straightforward upward movement into the light, but by the creator God going down into the dark to rescue humankind and the world from its plight. God is concerned about the world. It's why Jesus came. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer to it all. And that's not a cop-out. It's not a, yeah, you know, we just need Jesus. No, you just need Jesus. He is the answer to your longing for justice, your longing for equality. You know, Paul writes, and I'll end here, Paul writes that all creation waits in eager expectation for the coming of the new creation. I want to read this from Romans 8, 18 through 23, and then I promise I'll be done. 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, that's all the creation, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in a hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of of our bodies. The whole world, ourselves included, is longing for the resurrection, longing for the new creation, and it's found in Christ alone. Put your hope in Christ, friends. It's only there that all things are made new. This is our hope, and we must share it with the world. We have the answers. Let's not keep them to ourselves. Let's go into the world Show the world the goodness of Jesus, his love and his mercy and his kindness. Will you stand with me as we pray? And we thank you for your love. And we thank you that you are not unconcerned about us. And we thank you that you see our sin, our brokenness, our pain, our suffering. And you long, your move towards that day where all things will be made new. I thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news of the resurrection, the good news of redemption. We are so thankful for your love, your kindness, and your grace. And help us to live as resurrection people, not longing for the day that will be separated from the world, but longing for the day where you make all things new. And I pray that you would put inside of us a resurrection apologetic that we would speak to others from that. That we would tell others that, that their longings for the things that they long for aren't without merit. That you long for them too. You long for redemption and reconciliation. And that you have made a way for that to happen, O oh Lord. Help us to be people of the resurrection. Remind us every day of what you've done for us. Remind us that we were dead in our sins, but now we're alive in you. We have the assurance of the resurrection. Remind us of that daily so that we can live in light of that. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name.